Welcome to Know Your Nervous System. There we go. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. Heather, can you see my slides? Excellent. All right. Onward and upward. So today we have a presentation where we're going to learn about the nervous system in pretty general ways, right? So um, this is a, I wish it was a three hour workshop. It could really be like a three day or three week thing, um, but we've got 90 minutes. And um, so we're going to get some general overviews. It is a presentation to enhance your practice, right? Your yoga asana or movement and breathing practice. So the information is designed from that standpoint and for that standpoint. And based on that standpoint, we're going to look at where the nervous system in the body, what does it do? Why do we talk about it all the time? Because the nervous system, nervous system reset has become one of those like buzzwords. Um, and um, I want us to really know what it is know how to use this information in the practice we all love. We will have a little bit of yoga philosophy. Um, the This lens that the yoga philosophy provides gives us a bigger, broader perspective, and then we can get creative. I find that the foreign language of the yoga tradition allows me to get out of some of my Western mindset and into a much, much, much more expansive vision. Um, also, the yoga philosophy is just, I would call it interesting and it has this history and it has been, um, it has stood the test of time. Let's put it that way. And if the language is unfamiliar to you, just kind of roll with it. You'll pick it up over time and you can always do research and or watch the presentation again. Um, but the, the yoga philosophy I'm going to use are pretty standard, pretty foundational, and they still might be unfamiliar. We're going to have an overview of polyvagal theory. It'll be simplified. It is a layperson orientation. Again, we're not going to get super technical, um, but it's, it's going to give us enough to practice with. Similarly, with something called Rasa theory, this is a little bit more advanced yoga philosophy, and I will provide you with what you need to utilize this information in your personal practice. Um, in practice, I'm going to be asking you to tune in, feel, find flavor, like what's alive in you, what's arising for you, what state of your nervous system do you feel like you're in, and you're going to have the tools to assess that and start to play with that, and then we're going to use practice to balance whatever's arising inside of you. And we're gonna do three mini practices for three primary flavors. So a big, big, big um, journey that we're just beginning. And we're gonna begin with this quote from Deb Dana. She says, when the inner workings of our biology are a mystery, we feel as if we're at the mercy of unknowable, unexplainable and unpredictable experiences. Once we know how our nervous system works, we can work with it. And that is our goal today is to know how the nervous system works so we can work with it. And so your nervous system is basically the brain and the spinal cord. And there's a portion of the nervous system that is called autonomic. And notice how close that word is to automatic. And the autonomic nervous system manages activity below conscious thought. 
And thank goodness, because there's lots of things happening all the time that need to be below conscious thought. So blood pressure, hormones, your breath pattern, heart rate, like the list goes on and on and on and on and on. There are many, 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 many things happening to keep you alive that you don't have to figure out or think about or schedule. And um, this is what the autonomic nervous system is managing for us. It also shifts behavioral states and biological pathways as a primal, maybe even primitive, although it's it's also very, I don't use that word in a way that means not intelligent, right? But, but it's like, it's this basic building block of who we are. So it shifts behavioral states and biological pathways as a primal survival strategy. And again, this is encoded into our DNA. It's part of who we are as a species. And with the autonomic nervous system, we have two main pathways, and this is going to get more um, nuanced in a moment. We've all heard of the sympathetic nervous system, which is commonly called fight or flight. A better, more compassionate way to look at it is activation or mobilization. This is the pathway for doing stuff. And then you have the parasympathetic nervous system, commonly called rest and digest or feed and breed. And this is where you feel more calm, cool, and content. This also can lead to spaces of stillness, restfulness, even intimacy, which we'll see in a moment. Now, sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic, you need both. And many biological impulses in your body are balanced by the dance between these two pathways. Now, I'm going to go over this quickly, but I want you to pay attention to parasympathetic nerves. Slow the heart. Stimulate activity of the stomach. Inhibit the release of glucose, okay? And stimulates activity of the intestines. Notice that the inverse is true with the sympathetic nervous system. Increases heart rate. Inhibits activity of the stomach stimulates release of glucose, inhibits activity of the intestines. Anyone gets stressed and it's like your stomach stops working or gets all kind of wacky, right? So the nervous system will impact our um, digestive activity, right? And it, it's a great way sometimes to um, listen to the signals your body is sending to you and be able to sort through what's going on inside of you. Um, I will put the slides in the online portal so you have more time to look at some of the images like this one, but just kind of keep those that I mentioned in your mind's eye. So biological functioning is this dance between the two. And sometimes sympathetic gets a bad rap, but it's unsustainable to always be in that go, 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 do, do, do mode. But it's also unreasonable to think you're always going to be calm, cool, and content. A healthy nervous system is one that has resilience, is one that has balance, is one that's able to like self-regulate and um, maintain a certain degree of equilibrium, but also enjoy the ride of life. One of the modern problems we encounter is that many things are not life-threatening, yet they trigger our sympathetic nervous system, and then we're in a state of stress and survival, even when we're comfortable and safe. Especially in this country, we enjoy a, a really high degree of safety and comfort, and yet many people are just burnt out, depleted, stressed out, overwhelmed. Um, 
And part of this is we don't spend enough time consciously shifting into parasympathetic. And this is also where the body dedicates resources to like cleansing, healing, repair, regeneration, and detoxification. Now, chronic sympathetic activation reduces your ability. And we're going to see this with more with polyvagal theory to feel safe, social, connected, and creative with tons of sympathetic activation the world starts to feel intense aggressive rushed there's never enough time or resources with chronic stress and chronic sympathetic activation we see more stress hormones in the body including cortisol which means increased inflammation and increased possibility of challenges due to increased inflammation like chronic disease. Um, for example, like a really real life example that happened in our community, about three months into COVID, people started having a lot of aches and pains kind of popping up all over the body. And it was largely due to the amount of stress over a long period of time, lots of stress hormones flooding the body, increased inflammation. We just started to see kind of wear and tear and injuries pop up in the community. Now everyone has an edge for sympathetic activation. And when you fall off that edge, it's into shutdown, numbness, dissociation, burnout. And this will make more sense when we look at polyvagal theory in a moment. Balanced sympathetic and parasympathetic. So when we, we feel like they, there's a nice flow, there's that dance happening. This is when we get into states of play creativity and connection at work and at home. And ultimately the practices we're going to do today are to create more of those flow and play and balanced states and to give you the tools to access them more regularly. So let's talk a little bit more about sympathetic activation. When you're in this state, the body sends more energy, including blood, to the periphery, especially arms and legs, because that's what you would use to fight or flee. Um, as we saw in the chart, digestion becomes inhibited because you, you need to spend your energy elsewhere. Um, healing processes are bypassed. Again, other things are more important. And the get up and go neurotransmitter transmitters are pumped through the body. This includes adrenaline and cortisol. Your fast twitch muscles are primed for action. Some of the ones that we'll feel the most active in are like the trapezius muscles. Everyone touch up here. So, you know, these muscles, right, with more and more stress, more and more sympathetic activation, it's like they just crawl up towards your ears. It's almost like you put on a suit of armor in the upper body. And similarly with the quads, the quads tighten. And then we see the buttocks tuck under, more tension in the hip flexors and the groins, and eventually stress and strain on the lower back. So there are physiological things that will happen in response to what's happening with the neurotransmitters and the body and the nervous system in general. As we get tighter and tighter on the periphery, the deep endurance muscles, like the deep front line and the deep core are compromised. They're just like, okay, fine, whatever you take over. And also the breath becomes more shallow and chest driven. So more shallow chest driven breathing. Um, you actually start to experience oxygen hunger because the oxygen exchange with the blood happens in the lower portions of the lungs. So it's like, you can't get enough oxygen, breathe faster, breathe shallower, more sympathetic activation. And you could see how this could become quite a vicious cycle. Yeah. And um, so part of what's hard about sympathetic activation is it can start to feel like a runaway train. And sometimes the runaway train feels bad. And sometimes it feels good. Sometimes you're like, I'm a superhero. I'm getting things done. I'm checking things off the list. I have come to the rescue. I can do it all. And then you 
hit a wall, right? You hit that wall or you fall off that cliff and then you, you kind of fall apart or you're like stuff comes up, whatever that is, whether it's, you know, migraine headaches, digestive challenges, lower back goes out, whatever kind of like place your body knows to go that will get you to stop. Right. So, um, yes, you're all like, Oh, I know that place. Exactly. Okay. So what's our alternative? Well, when we have more parasympathetic activation, there are signals sent to the body that we are safe. We don't need to fight or flee. We can enjoy where we're at. We start to actually feel content and more at ease. Blood is actually then directed to the core of the body um, for activity like digestion, repair, regeneration. Those superficial muscles soften, right? We can actually get the deep endurance muscles to come back online. Functional breathing, which remember is that rhythm of respiratory diaphragm, pelvic floor diaphragm that is restored. So we get to feel strong and stable inside and not like we're going to need to do something dramatic on the outside. Also during parasympathetic activation, the vagus nerve receive, um, releases acetylcholine, which regulates things like heart rate, blood pressure, intestinal per, um, peristalsis but aids in cognitive abilities and memory, promotes muscle contraction and muscle tone. So again, there's um, the obvious physiological stuff, but then there's deep things happening with the neurotransmitters in the body that promotes more health and healing and get that, gets that ball rolling or promotes more stress and strain and, and keeps that ball rolling. And part of the brilliance of the practice is it gives us a place to either stop the runaway train or, or keep it going in that balance and healing direction. So vagus nerve, I've mentioned it a few times. Like scales, the branches of the nervous system are never in just one static state, but it's always a relationship. And again, a balanced nervous system is one that has bounce. It's able to spring back from stress, rise up and respond to the call of duty when necessary, um, and also rest deeply and completely. And I want you to pause for just a moment. Close your eyes and consider. What if you could do each of these with excellence? What if you could easily, gracefully spring back from stress? And just as easily and gracefully, when necessary, rise up and respond to a need, whether that's with a family member, a health crisis, a deadline at work, a creative idea but you had the energy to give yourself fully to it. And then also what if with excellence, you could rest deeply and completely and enjoy it. With knowing our nervous system, balancing the nervous system, this is what we're after is this very dynamic, graceful, easeful flow inside of us. And the good news is, is it begins with the breath. And we have a term at Condi Yoga School, breathing with circumference, and it's a more um, 
creative way to say full diaphragmatic breathing or functional breathing. And it's breathing in a way that the whole respiratory diaphragm expands and descends on the inhale and lifts up and in on the exhale. And the inhale is controlled by the phrenic nerve. So that's part of the sympathetic nervous system is gonna give you more sympathetic activation. We're gonna use that knowledge during our practice. The exhale is driven by the vagus nerve and stimulates the parasympathetic. When we breathe fully and deeply, we get to balance the two branches of the nervous system. It's that simple and that profound. It does require breathing functionally, right? And a lot of us have inverted breathing patterns, which means on the inhale, we up into the chest and pull the diaphragm up. And then we exhale and bear down and push the belly out. That's an inverted breathing pattern. So we'll have a little bit of time to work on that. But if you need more information on that, the Breathe Better Challenge is your resource. So the vagus nerve, again, um, drives the exhale. And the vagus nerve can be stimulated by the elongated exhale, or, or you know, you'll kind of get more stimulation through an elongated exhale. Also humming, singing, chanting, prayer. And in your resource page, there's a vagus nerve practice that'll have all of these techniques in them and then head below the heart position. So when we're doing a practice later on, you'll note that we, we start hanging the head and we just kind of start hanging in the forward bends and that's to get more vagus nerve stimulation. Now vagus nerve, let's talk a little bit more about that. So it is your 10th cranial nerve. Take your hands and um, feel the back of your skull. And notice where the skull starts to transition into the spine and then take your hands and run your hands along the sides of your throat. So the vagus nerve will exit the brainstem and then it'll travel down the sides of your throat and then take your hands up around by your ears, right? The vagus nerve and some of the cranial nerves are going to innervate the face. And this is what we're going to come to know as the ventral vagal pathway. Go ahead and massage the jaw cheekbones, temples, and even the forehead. So strategies like facial massage too can start to release some of these cranial nerves and open up the ventral vagal pathway. And we're even gonna do some eye movement later on that has a similar effect. So the vagus nerve comprises most of your parasympathetic nervous system. It innervates the organs of your guts more or less. So heart, lungs, kidney, bladder, stomach, intestines, also the face and the throat. There are two parts. And this is where, um, you know, Stephen Porges made a great contribution to the, the healing modalities in that they discovered that, that there's not just kind of one branch of the parasympathetic nervous system, but there are two different structures and there is the ventral portion, which is the front and the above the respiratory diaphragm, and it's myelinated. So it's a kind of a newer, you know, more evolved portion of the vagus nerve. And it's also a little bit slower. And then the dorsal, it's like the backside and it's below the respiratory diaphragm, unmyelinated. This is the older, more primitive um, portion of the vagus nerve, kind of the gut brain is sometimes called also faster. When the ventral vagal portion is activated, again, note that it's coming up around the face and the brain, we have access to higher thinking, including um, take your hand and go across your forehead, the prefrontal cortex. And this is where a lot of our rational thought and creativity and, and you know, higher thinking in, 
is coming from. Now, let's go back to this idea of the whole nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system, brain and spinal cord are always scanning the environment for cues of danger or safety. Stephen Porges, who's, we could call him the father of polyvagal theory, will call this neuroception. Um, we might call it inner awareness. And this scanning is happening below conscious thought through your senses. Based on the information your autonomic nervous system receives and your personal conditioning, that's key. The autonomic nervous system will shift behavioral states and biological pathways to respond. Again, the autonomic shifts are below conscious control and a reaction to whatever environment you're in externally as well as internally. So external means sounds, looks, smell. So um, kind of an example is you're walking down a dark alley and your senses will send you signals that prepare your body in, in a sympathetic state in case anything happens, right? And that's happening. And you may be like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Or even like a dark parking lot or a parking garage, you know, will be in an external environment that triggers a sense of danger and the body will respond. Internal environment can create the same thing. Anyone notice that when you're hangry, right? Hangry is an excellent example. You're hungry. The internal state is a little bit stressed and you end up being snappy and you can try to talk yourself out of it, but you're almost like out of your mind sometimes at, at points like that. Does this make sense? Similar with chronic pain or chronic illness is the internal state and, and stress of the internal state can actually influence the biological pathway. Um, now, important to note, and we'll come back to this, the autonomic state happens first the meaning making story follows. And part of the reason we have kind of slang words like hangry is because we needed some meaning making to help us relate to that state of I'm hungry and all of a sudden I'm getting angry. <laughs> um, and again, we're gonna return to this because it's gonna be big for Rasa theory. So here's a quote from Stephen Porges. By processing information from the environment through the senses, the nervous system continually evaluates risk. I have coined the term neuroception to describe how neuro circuits distinguish whether situations or people are safe, dangerous, or life-threatening. Because of our heritage as a species, neuroception takes place in primitive parts of the brain without our conscious awareness. Said another way, Neuroception has nothing to do with choice. It has everything to do with predetermined neurobiological responses to safety or danger. These responses are encoded into our DNA. Now, there's a part of me that is always a little bit sees the safety and danger as kind of like black and white. And I invite you to, to just kind of suspend judgment of whether things are, are safety, safe or dangerous and just watch how your body responds, right? Because I think those just can be so polarizing um, and our body might not feel safe or it might feel unsettled or ungrounded. We can use words like that and the body's going to start to give us signals, okay? So just in case those words are a little bit um, too polarizing, too kind of far to the left and right for you. Um, 
watch the body responding and resist any labels that might seem like you need to tamp things down or, or it might just seem too dramatic. So onward, we're going to start diving into some blending of yoga philosophy with the neuroscience and modern psychology. The synthesis here is intended to deepen your understanding and awareness for practice on and off the mat. Um, there are likely to be new terms and concepts. So again, if you don't get everything, you can always watch this again. And there are additional resources and in-depth study options available. But this is to give us tools to practice right now and, and have some really excellent ways to start relating to our bodies differently and our practice differently and to have some powerful practices in place for the holidays. So the first thing we need to know are something called the gunas. And the gunas are a concept from, it's very foundational to yoga philosophy. And guna means thread. It's considered a quality or an attribute of nature, a property of matter, all material reality called prakriti in yoga philosophy is woven of the three gunas. The three gunas are sattva, rajas, and tamas. Sattva is related to balance, harmony, equilibrium, light, and awareness. Rajas is related to action, energy, and movement. Tamas is related to heaviness, darkness, inertia, and stability. All three are present in everything, although sometimes one is more predominant. For example, air, sattva is the more predominant quality. Fire, rajas is the more predominant quality. Earth, tamas. A seed, for example, has all three. The seed is dense and it has kind of a self-contained identity that keeps it separate from the dirt. That is tamas. The movement of the seed growing roots and going down to get rooted and then the, the um, seeds sprouting upward with the stem, that is rajas, that movement and energy, rajas. The intelligence that tells that seed how to grow roots down, stem up, and tells that seed what it will be, an oak tree or a tomato plant, that is sattva. Similar with sleep. Staying asleep requires, going to sleep and staying asleep requ requires tamas, darkness, heaviness, inertia. Rising, coming out of sleep requires rajas, movement, energy, action. The balance between the two and being able to navigate the two, the body needs for the two is a sattvic quality. So what we are aiming for is sattva to be a container and we're going to see that this is similar to having the prefrontal cortex online and what the yoga tradition will call buddhi, this higher mind. Now, let's dive into that. So in the yoga tradition, just like there are three gunas, there are three layers of the mind. And the mind is described with three layers to identify different roles and qualities. But it's not like you have three different sections in your brain. Um, they don't exist separately like muscles. Um, we pull them apart to understand, but they always exist in a unified stream of perception and processing and awareness. So the quote unquote lower mind is manas, be related to the brainstem. This is your sensory and mental emotional processing center. It is heavily conditioned by experience related to the autonomic nervous system operates below conscious thought. And again, it'll be related to Thomas heaviness, darkness, inertia. 
ahamkara is called the eye maker. Um, it's kind of like ego, although a little bit different. Um, it is identity perpetuated by belief. We want ahamkara to be strong enough that we have will, boundaries, self-preservation, but not so rigid and inflexible that nothing new can arise inside of us. Ahamkara is related to the limbic system, to behavior and emotional responses, related to the amygdala and hippocampus, and it's related to the quality of rajas, activity, action, movement, and separateness. Buddhi, the yoga tradition will call this your higher mind, your higher intellect. This is where you have awareness, witnessing awareness, pattern recognition, creativity, and intuition. The yoga tradition would define intuition as the free flow of intellect. So it's not some kind of woo-woo out of thin air thing, but it's actually something that is trained and honed and has a lot to do with discernment. Um, buddhi is related to the prefrontal cortex and sattva. We're almost through the um, yoga philosophy term, so bear with me if this is new to you. Um, this is a chart just to help you organize your thinking. So we have the three gunas, sattva, rajas, tamas, the three layers of the mind, buddhi, ahamkara, and manas, and the brain regions that they correspond to, the prefrontal cortex, limbic system, brainstem. And we're going to see very soon that they can be, they can correlate, not the same, but correlate to the three um, aspects of polyvagal theory, the ventral vagal, sympathetic, and dorsal vagal. It's a quote from Deb Dana. Through a polyvagal lens, we understand that actions are automatic and adaptive, generated by the autonomic nervous system below the level of conscious awareness. I can't stress that enough. This is not the brain making a cognitive choice. There is, these are automatic energies moving in patterns of protection. And with this new awareness, the door opens to compassion. A lot of these images you're going to see next come from Deb Dana's work. And she often refers to polyvagal theories, the polyvagal ladder. And the ladder metaphor illustrates the layers and the necessity of traveling up and down with the different states of the nervous system. Now here is the good and bad news. It, it is sequential. You don't get, just get to like hop from one level to the other. So for example, if you can't be safe, it's fight or flight, run or attack. Still can't be safe. You drop down into freeze or collapse. To return to safety, you have to go back up the same way. So this is why, for example, if you if you kind of drop down into freeze, into depression, into withdrawal, um, I got to hide, I got to protect myself, I'm overwhelmed. You often have to travel back up through the sympathetic act. You do have to travel back up through sympathetic activation, which may be like anger, right? And anger, sometimes we don't see as a sign of progress, but it can be. And anger is also a lot of times where Boundaries are set, right? Ba anger can be a signal that there's a boundary violation. So it motivates us to take action from despair and hiding and collapsed on the floor to I got to do something about this. And by doing something about it, we have the opportunity to return to safety and connection. And we better understand that pathway. We can be more conscious about dropping down, coming back up, um, but also just more compassionate with what we need to do in those moments of transition. So note too, the Thomas and the Rajas and the Sattva, close your eyes again. With your eyes closed, 
feel in your body the qualities of safety and connection, belonging, empathy. Notice the qualities of anger, agitation, also passion. Notice the qualities of numb, collapsed, withdrawn, overwhelmed. Numb, collapsed, shut down, overwhelmed, often heavy energies, anger, irritation, passion, motivation, fire. There's fire that starts to be inside of us. And then spaciousness, empathy, connection. There's a lightness and even like a brightness to the heart space. These are intellectual concepts. And what we want to do is tie them to the body, um, especially for practice. This is another image by Deb Dana that I think is fantastic. Um and I will let you study this on your own. But again, the, they're just fantastic resources like this um, from polyvagal theory. Now let's look a little bit at each of these layers. So ventral vagal is your safe and social pathway, head, neck, and connected to the heart. It activates the safe and social behavior and responses. One of the things that was a breakthrough for me is when, when these systems are offline, being connected, feeling um, like you want to reach out and hug someone is not biologically available, right? So it's it, it kind of, you can generate some of these experiences, but we also want to recognize that when they're not available to us, there's work to be done. The ventral vagal pathway allows us to access higher thinking. So that's that prefrontal cortex and buddhi quality of the mind. And it generates spaciousness, safety, connection, harmony, um, sattvic qualities in body and mind. Sympathetic pathway is mobilization. It's in the torso. It governs the arms and legs, creates muscle tension, stimulates the HPA access. So adrenals, stress hormones. Um, it gives us the feelings of get up and go, which might be fight or flight, but can also be getting up for exercise, motivation for competition, accomplishments. So it's not all bad. It's just, we don't, we can't be there all the time without burning out. Right. And it's related to Rajas. It does inhibit social skills when we're in the sympathetic pathway, right? It's why if we are really focused on working on a project and someone comes in and asks you something, even if they say it in like the nicest voice in the world, we might snap at them. Does that make sense? Or like you're really charged to um, compete or accomplish something and you have to motivate yourself in a way that you kind of separate yourself from the competition. Okay, good. We got it. Um, and so there's this separateness that happens, which is related to ahamkara. Dorsal vagal is your immobilization pathway again, lives in the gut, very primitive. It's got that manas brainstem quality, produces states of freeze, shock, catatonic. Um, the thing to remember here too is we have biological changes with these pathways. So we see low metabolism, low oxygen, the heart rate starts to slow and experiences of overwhelm, hiding, withdrawal, or despair, those tomosic, heavier energies and experiences. Again, this is another graph that just shows how as stress and stimulation increases, um, we go from that safe and social through sympathetic, we'll peak at the kind of freeze states. And then we have to go 
back down through sympathetic to return to social engagement. Now, again, to give you grace and space and compassion, the activation is automatic. The body chooses for you. And the threat does not need to be real, only perceived as real. Um, for example, you may have a relative that feels threatening or someone in your life or workspace that feels threatening. They may not actually intend to hurt you. You just don't really feel safe around them. You don't feel settled in your own skin. You don't feel like you can be yourself. And so this is where that safety danger can become a little bit polarizing and not allow us to see the shades of gray in between. But because that person doesn't feel safe to you, you may not be able to kind of fully inhabit your body. You may have a certain degree of sympathetic activation. And again, if that continues too long and you kind of keep repressing it and stuffing it down, guess what? You're going to be numb. You know, um, so again, it doesn't need to be real, only perceived as real and embrace the shades of gray and the signals your body is sending you. Um, the responses are biological and primitive, also deeply personal and individual. There can be a mismatch in the environment and our autonomic reactions. This is what they'll classify as healthy versus unhealthy neuroception. For example, functional is when the environment and the response is aligned dysfunctional is when the environment and state are mismatched for example not accurately shifting state or not accurately detecting safety or danger um why does this happen because the familiar is not always safe or normal for example if you are in a home with abuse or addiction then some of what you assess as normal um, is not actually safe um, similarly, dysfunction is not able to see danger or sense danger or not being able to respond appropriately to safety, not being able to fully relax, even when safe, seeing safety maybe as um, triggering, right? And, and hopefully this happens to no in the room, but for some of us, we might be getting a big aha at this moment. Okay, the job of the autonomic nervous system is to ensure we survive in moments of danger and thrive in times of safety. Survival requires threat detection and the activation of a survival response. Thriving demands the opposite, the inhibition of a survival response so that social engagement can happen. Without the capacity for activation, inhibition, and flexibility of response, we suffer. So part of what we want to create is just this flexibility of response, more grace and space um, for whatever is arising, whatever we're experiencing, whatever we're sensing. And so speaking of flexibility, we're going to expand this polyvagal lens a little bit farther. The polyvagal um, kind of three main pathways, think of them like three primary colors, ventral vagal, yellow, sattva. Sympathetic red rajas, dorsal vagal blue tamas, and then we have what are called mixed states. So play is a balance of ventral vagal and sympathetic, and you can see this with kids, right? They're stimulated and they feel safe, but if someone takes it too far, someone gets scared or angry. There's crying or hitting or biting if you're my nephew, right? So play is this kind of delicate balance of ventral vagal and sympathetic. Stillness and intimacy 
Um, deep states of meditation are an excellent example. There's this spaciousness and openness of the ventral vagal channel, but then also this like heaviness and stillness that is dorsal vagal. And then there's also the freeze panic attack, which is dorsal and sympathetic. It's this numb and shut down, um, but still stimulated, right? Very tricky to um, extract ourselves from that one because you actually need the activation to kind of get out of the dorsal vagal shutdown. So we use the color wheel. We use the language to play and, and to get creative and again, have a little fun with this that it doesn't need to be really heavy and dense and, and intellectual, but it can actually be quite engaging and useful and practical. So story follows state. Something to recognize is that thoughts reflect the autonomic state that you're in. Sensory information is being fed up to the brain and it's the brain's job to make sense of it. So we create narratives based on how we're feeling. So again, think of hangry. And when we're safe and social, we are more likely to feel hopeful, to be able to respond with empathy. We have access to our critical thinking and our higher mind. We're more likely to be curious and open. We see possibilities. We can do great planning. With sympathetic activation, more likely to be blame, shame, avoid responsibility, reactionary, separateness. Anyone notice that based on how what mood you're in, someone sometimes someone can come with you with almost the exact same thing and you respond differently, right? Story follows state. Um, the state that you're in will will greatly influence how you respond to something. And then doors will shut down, overwhelm, hopeless, despair, judgment, especially towards self, lack of critical thinking. I cannot handle any more of this right? Um, so let the stories you tell be more information, not absolute truth. And one of the great um, metaphors for this in the yoga tradition, and, and it's related to avidya, which is missing misperception, is you're on a path and there's something on the path. And before you can assess what it is, your body will have a reaction. And then it may be a snake or it may be a rope. And I'm sure you've been on hikes or walks and things like that have happened. You've had a reaction and then your mind has to figure it out. But the biological response is first. Similar is a day after a fight or an argument. And once everything's cooled down, it can seem totally different. You're like, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I saw you this way. And you, you could really be at one another, see one another as enemies um, versus being on the same team. And it will have a lot to do with what state you're in. Um even like sports, you know, if you're not a football fan and someone is a game could be like, they're up, they're yelling, they're, they're, they're totally in it. And you're like, this is so boring. I don't get it. Right. So again, the state you're in will influence your experience. You, you can tell I'm a football fan, right? Um, now, uh, here's something to help us kind of wrap up the polyvagal teachings in dealing with our daily ups and downs. It is useful to recognize that autonomic response is constantly being activated as a defense mechanism. If we recognize this visceral response, so the response is happening in our body, we can move from being in to being with our experience. This is really what we want to do with our practice instead of being in being with bringing awareness to our autonomic responses allows us to observe them, embrace them for their protective power, and it opens a door to the possibility of deeper inquiry to our reactions. 
Once we become curious and introspective about our own reactions, we move into the ventral vagal state where exploration, self-inquiry, and open-mindedness are possible. So just, you know, getting into that place of curiosity and wonder starts to change everything from perspective, yes, but even the neurochemistry of the body and which biological pathways you're taking. Another way to say all of that, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom and power to choose our responses. In our responses lies our growth and our freedom. Victor Frankl. Okay, so we're now moving from polyvagal theory into something called Rasa theory. And Rasa theory, I'm gonna give you a brief overview of it, similar to polyvagal theory, um, is a tool that I think is phenomenal for giving us space and grace with whatever's arising inside of us. So to be with what's arising inside of us, like those two quotes, we need enough space. And that also means ventral vagal activation, prefrontal cortex is online, that buddhi higher mind is activated. And again, space, we could also translate that as sattva. In other words, you can't be pigeonholed in chronic sympathetic activation can't be limited by your separate self and stuck in that rajasic go, 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 do, do, do. You also can't be in the dark of Thomason survival mode. So with, without space, with space, you're less likely to get hijacked is what one of my teachers calls it. I think it's a wonderful term. Um, and because you'll notice what's happening, for example, with sympathetic activation, I get hot, I get hot and kind of like itchy. And when I'm hot, itchy, irritated, I know I need to do something to kind of discharge some of that energy. Um, otherwise it's like pick a fight or you're gonna flee. And sometimes fleeing is actually so you can recalibrate. And, or when you're starting to shut down, withdraw, overwhelmed, burnout, you know, for me, I know one of my signals there is despair or just like, I can't, I can't handle this or the good old effort. You know, as soon as I'm thinking that, or I don't even care, I know I'm slipping down into dorsal vagal. So with awareness, we can self-soothe and respond to our own needs. And then we get to respond to the outside world with more grace too. And if this sounds like a lot, remember that parasympathetic activation is as close as full, deep breathing and even curiosity and wonder about what is arising inside of you. And this is where Rasa theory comes in. So I'm gonna present you with the technical traditional definition and then kind of a modern interpretation. So the word Rasa in Sanskrit means juice or flavor. Rasa theory is a perspective that was used to assess the aesthetic experience. So traditionally it was related to arts and the experiences art can provoke, including music, painting, dance, theater, and the experiences you could have through artistic expression and experience. I propose that we become artists through everyday living and we can create that sense of artistry and agency when we have awareness about what's arising inside of us and can transmute whatever we're experiencing into something sublime. This is a quote from Harish Wallace. He says, Rasa is thought to be an experience 
that people who are not spiritual practitioners can obtain only through experiencing art. Because it is only with art that we allow ourselves to become detached enough to be witnesses to our emotional states, savoring them without being caught up in them. So imagine if you could savor your emotional states without being caught up in them. That's what Rasa theory wants us to be able to do. And that may seem really far away, but think of this. Why do people love movies and shows? Entertainment, yes. But what? why are they entertaining? Part of what entertaining is that we get to have an emotional experience with distance. And again, close your eyes and think of a time or think of a movie or a show, something you watched, maybe it's a book, but think about something that generated strong emotions, especially emotions you would typically label negative, like sad. Legends of the Fall comes to mind. One of my favorite movies is Interstellar. It was very intense and it was very like just the whole range of emotions. But we savor these artistic expressions because they give us that emotional catharsis with distance. And so things we might normally run from, sad, intense, even scary, can become beautiful and even healing when we have that type of distance and witnessing awareness. So through practice, we create a similar type of witnessing awareness and spaciousness inside of ourselves so that we eventually are able to admire um, our experiences without being consumed or hijacked. And this is how we become artists with our inner experiences. Now, Rasa does create certain flavors or juice in your body through hormones and chemistry. And I think that's really important to recognize that if someone's predominant emotional state is angry, it's like you experience them as an angry person. They almost have like an aura of anger or um, someone who, you know, I, I'd say sometimes I meet people have like pig pen energy. They just kind of, kind of like an aura of chaos around them. Um, there are people who live lives with high levels of peace and contentment, and they have that aura around them. So the flavors we experience generate the flavors inside of our body, the neurochemistry and the hormones. And the tradition says that rasa, the flavor, eventually becomes bhava, the mood or the vibe. So we have an opportunity again to get creative. Rasa theory is um, and again, it's much deeper. We're just kind of getting this overview of like watching and witnessing and being spacious enough that we can tolerate a wider range of experiences and also respond to them intelligently and skillfully. Um, and, and I would ask you to question yourself when encountering something difficult, uncomfortable, hard, frustrating, challenging, what is your default flavor? Is it sweet and encouraging? Is it enthusiastic or is it bitter? Is it self-punishing, self-beating? Is it angry? Is it mean? Is it fearful and avoidant? 
And if you don't know, watch, but it's a good thing to know. And again, give yourself enough distance from it that we actually have a chance to work with it. And anytime you're too activated, too stressed, too rushed, too depleted, you will not have the space to do this work. And while this work might seem like a lot or a big commitment, I believe that ignorance and resistance is much more costly. That resisting what is arising inside of us, that repressing and stuffing and shutting out and numbing and, and, and pushing everything down, it only erupts eventually. And often at, at the greatest cost to us. It also prevents us from being present and receiving the gifts of information the body is trying to provide to us. And, you know, um, one of the things I, I teach is inner listening. And um, often we want to listen to our body. We want to have a relationship to like intuition and spirit and our heart and our soul and purpose and dharma and all those things. But we can't get that type of information if we're stuffing a bunch of other things. If we create a dam, nothing gets through. We don't get to just choose the information we want and, and push away the information we don't want. It's It's gotta be a free flow or nothing, right? And if you're only letting a trickle up um, in terms of like category A, you're only gonna get a trickle of category B. So what does this mean for practice? When we practice today, we're going to tune in and listen. I'm going to ask you to sense what flavor is arising inside of you. What guna? And then what does this mean? Consider what does this mean for your mind and your nervous system? And then what do you need? What would create balance and harmony in body and mind and nervous system in particular? And then I also invite you to consider rhythm, the pace of your practice and the pattern of your breathing will influence your body, your mind, and your nervous system. So I invite you to consider if we live in a society that loves rajas and promotes go, 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 do, 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 tons of stimulation, tons of intensity. And then we go to a practice that is go, 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 do, 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 tons of stimulation, tons of activity. Are we creating change for ourselves or is it more of the same? And sometimes that practice feels awesome. But I propose that we don't do enough of creating something different for ourselves, something soothing and healing and nourishing. And that does not need to be a restorative practice. There is a way to do an active practice in a way that's deeply nourishing and restorative for the body, mind, and nervous system. We're going to do one today. So again, the rhythm of your practice and the pattern of your breathing will impact you. And then again, response. What is happening? What's arising? Did you create change? Is there an energetic or state shift in the body? So we're going to practice with these things, relationship, what's going on, rhythm, pattern of movement, pace of movement, pattern of breathing, pace of breathing, exaggerating the inhale will be stimulating, exaggerating the exhale will be cooling, even ratio balancing. And then the actual movements will also correspond to the guna. So we're going to start with a sattvic practice, which like, if you're like, you know what, I'm doing pretty good today. I'm pretty balanced. Let's keep the balance train rolling. So the sattvic practice that we'll do first, balancing the branches of the nervous system. So you're going to see an even ratio of breathing, pumping, pulsing postures to keep the even ratio of breathing. 
Rajas practice. This is assuming that you're in more of that rajasic state, more of a sympathetic activation. So it's going to discharge energy, especially through arms and legs. And then we're going to start to use an elongated exhale um, and then finish with calming centering poses. The tamasic practice assumes that you're kind of feeling dark and feeling heavy or like Eeyore, you know, is how I think of it. You like know you should practice, but you don't really want to. So you want to encourage flow in a gentle way. So we're going to start with legs up and then we'll slowly build rhythm and movement and finish with some heating and energizing poses. So that's how we're going to practice. That's kind of like the overview. And I'll be um, walking you through what's going on in each of these practices too. I will be practicing from my mat and um, I'll have the spotlight on me so you can watch along, do what you can do. Um, and this will be on the resource page. I'm also going to do some 20 minute miracles based on each guna. I know that I said we do a little Q&A, but I'm going to ask that if you have those, you send them to me um, so that we can get to practice. We might go a little bit over, but I'm going to try to stay about 7.10, 7.15 at the latest. If you need to go earlier, please do so. Again, all the recordings will be available to you. So we're going to start laying down um, and uh, ready, set, go. Go. 